It's a great joy. I can't tell you how, how much of a joy it is to, to be here. I was a little early, so drove in around the northern link and down the Ombassy Road uh, the way I would always have come uh, to church, just for sort of nostalgia's sake. You can be nostalgic at this age. And, uh, and it was an extraordinarily strange feeling. It was a happy feeling. It was a, a very lovely feeling, but strange all the same. Um, it's three years now, for those of you who don't know, that um, Liz and I moved from Worcester, where we had been for 40 years, uh, up to Leeds. We were, no one was more surprised than, than we were to be heading that way, but the Lord seemed to make his will quite clear. And I bring you greetings from the church in Leeds that we're involved with and part of the Salt and Light tribe, as are you, different clan, but same family, same tribe. And I bring you greetings from that community. It's such a different city from this one. Uh, you might be surprised to learn that there are more people for whom English is a second language than their first language uh, in the church where we're involved now. Very cosmopolitan city, a very exciting place to be. Uh, 88,000 students. We're looking for 88,001. So if you're here thinking about uni, Leeds is the place to come. Love to talk to you afterwards. Um, but it's, it's a, a great place to be and we're involved a little bit across the region as well serving the churches up there. So it's a great joy. Bring greetings from there. Bring greetings too from uh, Victor and Olga and those with them in what is now called Pokrov, but in, U in Ukraine, a church that you have faithfully supported for so very long. And I took the, the, uh, the latest and last of your gifts to them uh, when we were out there last weekend. They are hugely, hugely grateful. I can't tell you how much of a place this community here in Worcester has in their hearts. Just put your hand up if you've ever been to Ukraine. You see, a number of folks, it's great. Um, thank you. Well, they send their love, they're in a very good place, they're, they're doing well. Uh, some of you will know that Victor's wife Olga suffers with quite severe rheumatoid arthritis, but she's better than she's been in many a year. Victor himself has a issue or two with his heart and you might like to pray for that as he gets it investigated and treated but he's in a very good place um, in terms of his faith and his joy in God and, and the uh, fruitfulness of the ministry there it was a joy to see. So yeah we had a fun time with the team there uh, over last weekend. It hasn't got any closer or any quicker to get there but it is still just as rewarding to be there. And finally, I bring you greetings from, I will get started in a minute, but this is just clearing the ground of all the, all the, uh, the greetings from Liz. Um, she would love to have been here, and it was her intention to be here. Um, but her mum has been living with us for the last six months or so, and in the last few weeks had started to go down very downhill very quickly as her kidneys packed up, and she eventually passed away just yesterday afternoon. So... Um, uh, I think everyone in the household felt that that was timely, uh, as did my mother-in-law. She was ready to go, and um, uh, it was a, a very easy, and you know, the, the signs of God's grace are all over that whole sort of episode. So um, uh, Liz is naturally going to miss her, but also I think felt, feels it was, it was time. Uh, her mum was in her early 90s, 
and um, has gone to a much better place. So um, we're delighted about that. So greetings from Liz, um, as from Ukraine and Leeds. So have we got anything up there? We have. So that's the title, Serving Without Sinking, Going On Without Going Under. The question we're going to address is, is it possible to maintain long-term zeal without burning out? Burnout has been uh, defined as the feeling of physical and emotional exhaustion due to long-term unmanaged stress. Now I know that none of you in this room, you see you're already laughing, none of you in this room <laughs> will have had any experience of this, but if you haven't yet then you're just getting lined up for it. And um, uh, you'll be familiar, I'm sure, many of you with uh, a graph like this. There are many similar examples around. The so-called stress performance graph. Uh, whereas you can see, uh, there, uh, if you're not stressed enough, you're not very active, you're not very productive, and you're not very fulfilled. As stress levels increase, your performance also increases. Uh, and there's a healthy phase in which you feel motivated and focused and you're productive. And that's the sort of yellow phase there on that graph. Peak performance is reached at a particular stress level. And of course, that's different for everybody. No two people are quite the same. Some function better at higher levels of stress and others at lower levels of stress. But there will come a point for everybody at which if the stress levels continue to increase, focus gives place to fatigue, and unless something is recognized at that point and the, uh, the situation continues to deteriorate, then exhaustion and anxiety and burnout and breakdown happily await. Now, I've got a better story than that to tell, but that's the story that sometimes is the one. And of course, Christians are particularly at risk because they care. People who don't care uh, don't suffer from burnout, don't have breakdowns, don't get overly stressed. But Christians are people who like to go the extra mile. They see selfless serving as a high value. One of my early heroes, one, perhaps one of yours, is George Whitfield, uh, who was a famous preacher a number of years ago now in this nation. He famously said, I'd rather wear out than rust out. And I was raised on that kind of thinking, that interpretation of discipleship. I bought into the mindset that was zealous for God, that thought heroic self-sacrifice was the least we could do. Jesus had sacrificed himself for us, then of course we should do the same in response to that love and sacrifice. The result was that uh, for significant parts of my own Christian journey, I've been close to burnout, certainly past the tipping point, Many is the holiday that I can remember, the first two days of which were completely lost in uh, migraines. My body telling me, 
Look what happens the moment you relax. Listen and learn. You're under pressure. But I didn't listen and I didn't learn for a number of years and I made the cardinal error of assuming that busyness equals effectiveness. Some of you will have been in our home at that stage of our lives when you could see under the telephone table, that was in the day when you used to have a table for a telephone. <laughs> Younger people talk to me afterwards and I'll explain what one of those is, but we, we used to we used to do that, and um, underneath that table was four black bags. The first of them was a medical bag full of all the usual instruments of torture that doctors carry around with them when they visit folks in their home. That was one bag because that took up a portion of my week. Then there was another bag full of things related to church, rotors and essentials like that, maybe even a Bible for special days. And, um, and that was another bag that got taken around with me to various meetings here and there. And then there was a third bag because for a season, um, I taught maths. Can you believe it? I taught maths to my own son and others who were unfortunate enough to be sitting GCSE at the same time at the river school. Not for long. They learned quickly and uh, realized that I was not cut out for this. But for a season, that was another bag. Uh, and then there was a fourth bag, which was the bag that saved me from the results most of the time of the other three bags, which was my sports bag. I had my squash kit in it, and um, uh, the head teacher, as was then, of the River School and I used to s hit six bells out of each other every Friday at 4.40 on the squash court, uh, and it probably saved both of us from an earlier um, insanity than we otherwise made uh, later in life. So four bags, uh, stupidly busy, thinking it was effective, seriously deceived. Truth is, wearing out is not the only alternative to rusting out. Living out a sustainable and sacrificial life of service is possible. And yet everywhere I continue to see weary and worn out Christians, particularly those in leadership, particularly those leading churches in pastoral work and the like. So we're going to look at Jesus' prescription for beating burnout. And here it is. I'm going to put it up twice in two different translations, but this is the New Living Translation. Then Jesus said, come to me. All of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you. Because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. And then in the message version, which I love for a number of reasons, uh, are you tired? Worn out? burned out on religion, come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I love that phrase. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Who is Jesus addressing? Well, he's addressing all who are weary, those who've had enough, those who can't go on, those who are 
disheartened, those who are discouraged or disappointed or even disillusioned. They may be carrying the right load, but they've lost their rhythm. He's addressing the overburdened, too much, too heavy, too relentless, too costly. Maybe they've said yes once too often and it proved to be the final straw. Maybe they were so full that there was no room for life events of the sort that Sim was talking about earlier. Things that you can't prepare for and can't plan but happen and invade your space. Unexpected intrusions. He's talking to those who are at the point of burnout, running on empty with a spent emotional tank. That's what he saw when he looked around him. He saw the signs and he made the diagnosis, worn out and burned out. Now in the context, this could refer to those who were weary of religion, serving under an impossible weight of expectation, whether imposed by others or self-imposed, trying to satisfy the demands of religious law, a demanding taskmaster. But he was also speaking to his own disciples. And the point for us is this, that it is possible to become weary in well-doing, in serving the Lord and his church and his kingdom. It's possible to lose the joy you started with. It doesn't happen all at once. It comes on slowly as demands outgrow capacity, the boundless enthusiasm you started with seems slowly to leak away. You dread opening the emails yet another day or answering the phone in case there's another call that requires you to intervene. Something within you starts to rage. Surely it wasn't meant to be like this. Now, maybe you've never been there, but a number of you will have. Your sense of duty and loyalty and commitment keep your nose to the grindstone. And perhaps it's only those who are closest to you who spot that slow change from a sunny disposition to a slightly cloudy one. The lost sense of fun, the increasingly frequent gloomy moods, maybe a shorter temper, perhaps more chocolate more alcohol, whatever it takes to get through the day or to comfort yourself at day's end. If that's the diagnosis, what's the remedy? Well, Jesus in these few verses makes a threefold prescription. That's the diagnosis. This is the first phase of that remedy, if you like. He issues an invitation. He says, come to me. I've something to give you. Not a scolding, not a severe talking to, not a dressing down, but a rest. Take rest. Notice he doesn't say, let me relieve you of your burden. He doesn't say, drop everything. He's not prescribing a day off, even a week off, or a month for that matter. This rest that he's describing is not a cessation from work. 
but rest in the midst of work. Jesus is saying, come to me and you will receive rest, but in the context of going on. It's ironic, really, that ministry for God can sometimes be the very thing that separates us from God. Instead of being the thing we do in His service, it becomes the thing that we serve in itself. And this is sometimes, and I'm sure that this has been true for me at points uh, earlier, it's, this is sometimes because our own sense of identity gets attached to the serving that we do. Our sense of worth, our sense of value becomes integrated with that job, that work, that service, whatever it is that you are doing for him. We work hard because at some deep level we're striving to earn God's approval or the praise of others or some sense some sense that our acceptance, our place requires this of us. So our serving becomes all about us, our securities that need buttressing, our pride possibly that needs to be stroked, and the very service that was meant to bring us joy actually comes between us and God, becomes wearisome and burdensome, robs us of our intimacy with God. And we start to skim. Some of you will know these symptoms. We start to do life shallow. We're shallow in our walk with God. We have a brief time of prayer which really, more often than not, just, just involves lining up a list of things that we'd like Him to intervene about or help with. And it's not that His ears are closed to that, but it's not really relationship, is it? It's a one-way list. We start to skim with God. We start to skim in our relationships with one another, perhaps especially those who are our closest relationships. We don't do depth anymore where it's full stretch. And to all such, Jesus says, come back, come back to me. Rest is found in me because in my love, acceptance doesn't have to be earned. The flawed and the fragile are acceptable, not based on their service. Your sense of worth will never be bolstered by sacrificial service for God, nor mine. It comes from knowing the price that was paid for us. That's what gives us our sense of worth, the price of his one and only son the price he paid for calling us his child, his adopted son and daughter, chosen and precious. Come and let me give you rest. As you recall these things, as you right-size the problems and right-size my fatherhood, let me give you rest from the wearying pressure to perform. Come back to intimacy, to being before doing. Now, I don't know about you, your, your sense of stress, if you've got one, may need nothing more than a fresh ordering of your day to give that intentional space and time with God once again. Time talking with Him, 
time in his scriptures, time thinking about what you've read. It may need you to stop the heroics and take a weekly day off, a Sabbath. Book that mini break. Invest in Netflix if you have to. Start learning to salsa like some have done in the past. Time with resourceful friends. Time to reflect. Come back to me. That was his first prescription. And if you're in danger of burnout, then a more drastic action may be needed under the heading of come back to me and take rest. Because you don't get close to burnout because you've had a pressurized week. More like a pressurized decade. And in those situations, a rule of thumb might be that for every year that you have been enslaved to service in this way, you may need a, a good month's rest from that stress-causing role. So let's pause for a moment. Let's close your eyes. Ask yourself, is there anything in that call to come back, come to me and rest? Is there anything there that you need to hear? If there is, make a mental note or even write it down because we're going on to point two in 10 seconds. The next thing that uh, Jesus says by way of remedy is learn of me. We've had come to me, now learn of me, he says in this passage. There is no shortage of books about stress around and about, and most of them have lists uh, of things to do to beat burnout. Ten keys for this, twelve principles for that, twenty essential changes you need to make to your life. That just sounds like more stress to me, but there you go. That's how they're written. But in the short passage that we read, Jesus just gives us a list of two. Two keys to finding and living in the unforced rhythms of grace. Learn of me, he says, for I am humble and gentle at heart. There are two things that will save you from wearing out or burning out, and they both have to do with your heart, says Jesus. Now, of course, we need to pay attention to sleep and rest, to diet and exercise, to recreation, recreation, to time with resourceful friends and time off. All of these things are important. We must guard our minds from being distracted. We must guard our wills from disobedience, but Jesus says, listen and learn. If you want to enjoy soul rest in the midst of the most severe trials and in seasons of intense pressure and stress, such as he himself knew, then pay attention to the climate of your heart, he says. Be humble and gentle. If I'd been writing this, I probably would have said, be determined and resilient, or something like that. But he doesn't, not even smarter and wiser, but humble and gentle. He is humble at heart. One of the biggest stress factors in our lives is our concern about what others 
think of us. We saw earlier that one temptation we face is to serve in order to impress so that other people will think well of us, speak well of us, admire us, applaud us. We like to feel needed and where the need is to be needed, particularly if it's paramount, then we're in danger of encouraging folk to become dependent upon us and indebted to us. And for those in a pastoral caring role, that's a dangerous place to be. If we have to impress others, we can't afford to make mistakes. And if we can't afford to make mistakes, we often don't want to make decisions. Have you noticed that? We're paralyzed by the need not to lose popularity. It's hard work maintaining a flawless, flawless image. Very hard work, because we are flawed. At the root of all of this deadly mix of pride and security is the need to learn from him. The humble person has nothing to defend. His reputation or her reputation is of no account to them. He knows he's a sinner, deserving nothing but judgment, but he knows too that he's saved by grace, that he'll receive mercy, not judgment from God. And he lives life in gratitude for that grace and that mercy. And he serves not to impress God or man, not to gain kudos or popularity, but in response to that love that he's received. And if he serves well and he's honored my men, well, so be it. He gives the glory to God because he doesn't need it to bolster his own securities. He's content because only one opinion matters and that's that of his savior. And he knows that he's already got that, not because he's earned it, but because it's a gift. He's learned the secret of contentment in any and every circumstance. It has nothing, he has nothing to lose because he's already surrendered it. It's gone. And the truly humble person is therefore immune to the, what, what Shakespeare called the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Because he knows his life is hidden with Christ in God. And that nothing, whatever happens, can separate him from that love. And he needs no other affirmation in this life. In his faithfulness, he looks forward to the day when he will hear Jesus say to him, well done, good and faithful servant. Such a servant has nothing to prove and nothing to fear. He's at rest, even in the midst of struggle and strife. And that's what Jesus was trying to say to his his disciples learned from me, I'm humble. They watched him in the Garden of Gethsemane, perhaps the most stressful moment in the whole of his earthly life, knowing that he was going to face crucifixion. He was authentic enough to pray, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He was real and humble enough to add, nevertheless, not my will, but yours. That's humility. That's a readiness to die daily to self, to relinquish reputation, to count it an honor if required, to share 
in his sufferings because we know that those who share in his sufferings will also share in his glory. So that's humility, learn of me. The other thing, and I'm, I'm taking my time over these two points because they are at the heart of what Jesus said here, was gentleness. Be gentle. Actually, the word translated gentle in, in this version is in many versions translated as meekness. A word that sounds, in English at least, suspiciously like weakness, even though it means almost the very opposite. A meek person is one not who's weak, but whose strength is harnessed, is under control. It's the word that was used of a, a wild horse that was gently and lovingly broken in so that it would learn to accept the bit and the bridle. A meek horse remains immensely powerful, but its strength is channeled and controlled, and you can put a diminutive jockey on its back, and that horse will obey just a simple tug of the fingers or a nudge of the knees, even at full gallop. That's a meek person. Not weak, but broken in this sense. David understood this when he wrote Psalm 51, didn't he? A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. A meek person refuses to take offense because offense is something that's taken, not given. Understand that. A meek person refuses to take offense, won't pity himself or herself, won't carry a grievance. That doesn't go with being meek. Meek persons forbear when others behave badly towards them. They keep short accounts. They, they forgive quickly. Meek carers or pastors or leaders or Christians in any walk of life recognize that being misunderstood and misrepresented and frequently misquoted and sometimes maligned goes with the job. It just is. Many of you know that. But meek people can accept that blame and responsibility for failings elsewhere will often be directed at them. And they've just learned to suck it up. They know it goes with the job, they suck it up, they won't take it to heart, they take it on their chin. They let it pass. They don't have to fight their own corner. They leave vengeance to God. They trust Him to be their defender. Do you know what? There's nothing more exhausting than victimhood. There's nothing more tiring than carrying about with us a sense of it's not fair, a sense of injustice. It soaks up our emotional resources faster than anything. This is not to say that meek people shouldn't defend the truth of the gospel or fly to the defense of the defenseless. Of course they should, and they do. But those things don't wear us out in anything like the same way. 
when Paul wrote his letter to the Corinthians in Corinth, uh, he scolded them for squabbling amongst themselves to the point where they were taking each other to court. And Paul's advice, you can read it for yourself in 1 Corinthians 6 if you wish, he says, why don't you just accept the injustice and leave it at that? Just accept it. You don't have to square the record. Why don't you just, these are the words he said, why don't you just let yourselves be cheated? It's only yourself that stands to lose. He could have said, save yourself the stress, but they didn't talk about stress incessantly in those days. It was a stressful enough life though. Just let go your case and retain your rest. That's what he said. Maybe, maybe you've been passed over when a new role became available. Maybe you've walked and worked loyally only to be taken for granted. Maybe you've been wounded and those wounds have festered and robbed you of vitality and stolen the rest out of your soul. Jesus says, learn from me. This is the Lamb of God who before his shearers was dumb. Watch him on the cross as the hands that, as the hymn goes, through stars into space, meekly accepts the nails. The one who sustains creation by the word of his power, refusing to judge his tormentors and speaking kindly to a repentant criminal. Learn from me, humble and meek. Let's close our eyes, pause for 30 seconds. And if we have something to note, something that the Holy Spirit in his kindness and gentleness is applying to your heart, then make a note and respond. Come to me, learn of me, and finally, looking ahead. That's what the word prognosis means. It's all about, it's a doctor's word, really. I apologize for it. It's about outcomes. It's about looking forwards. Be yoked to me, he said. He was using a picture that would have been very familiar in his own landscape, that of a yoke. He was, after all, a carpenter. He would have probably made many a yoke fitted across the shoulders of oxen so that it wouldn't rub or chafe. It was common practice in Jesus' day for farmers to yoke together a mature and reliable beast alongside a younger, learning, inexperienced one. So that if the youngster was distracted or tried to go offline, then the more mature mentor ox, if you like, would keep, keep the young one on track. If the young one is impetuous and tries to race ahead, the older beast would slow it down so that strength would last the day and not just for a mad hour. And when the day was well spent, 
and the ground became heavy or steep and the younger beast was starting to flag, then the experienced ox would lean more strongly into the yoke and take more of the weight. And in this way, the younger beast would learn the importance of persistence, of pace, of stamina. All of that was behind what Jesus was implying when he says, take my yoke, be yoked with me. Do it my way and do it with me. Friends, each of us has a yoke, his yoke, his call. He's gifted you for it. He shaped you for it. It's uniquely yours. Take my yoke, my service, our service for the king, for his church, for his kingdom, to keep going, to learn the unforced rhythms of grace, we are yoked with him. Yes, that work will require self-sacrifice. Yes, it will require stamina. And to flourish, we will need humble, gentle, meek hearts. We remember that it's all about him, not us. It's he who walks with us. It's he who keeps us on track. It's he who leans into that yoke when we think we're going to stumble, when we feel we can't go on, when it's all so heavy. That's the moment when he says, hey, I'll lean into this more strongly. Trust me. Lean on me, if you like. You're yoked with me. You'll find rest in these testing times for your soul, even in the valleys of the shadows of death, as well as in the still waters and green pastures, because both are a normal part of our journey, yoked to him. If we'll stick close to him, if we'll learn to develop and maintain a humble and meek attitude, then the promise is that we shall live freely and lightly, I love that expression, that this yoke will sit easily on our shoulders, that the weariness and burnout that we witness in others will not come knocking on our door. So if we want to live in rest amidst pressure, come to me, make intimacy your priority, learn of me, be humble, and gentle of heart, be yoked to me. Yield to my leadership, my lordship. Let me teach you the pace and the stamina of the yoke that we share. And it will sit easily on your shoulders and you will live freely and lightly. Little by little, I'm beginning to learn to live differently. 70 is a great time to start, <laughs> if you haven't started. Let's just pause and reflect and pray and give thanks. Jesus, thank you. You are so patient with us.
if you recognize in yourself someone who is tempted to work so hard for God because you're seeking to earn something from him, make today a day when you change your mind. When you realize you've nothing you need to earn, it's a free gift. And let him begin to transform that service back into a joyous thing, a liberating thing. Lord Jesus, for any and all wearing those shoes today, I pray for freedom, liberation, a recovery of delight, a recovery of intimacy, of relationship with you, not just slavery to your work. And Father, where we've picked up bruises and wounds along the way and they hide in the shadows of our hearts and fester, we want to let the clean, fresh wind of your spirit blow through those places where you want to humble our hearts and buy meekness from you and let go our sense of victimhood or an injustice and forgive freely and forbear with one another because we are all flawed and we will fail. And we do that gladly today. Thank you for your example. Thank you that we're not alone in this. Thank you that we are yoked to the greatest example. And I want to pray, Father, that your yoke will be experienced as something light and fitting and free for all here this morning. We come to you and say, Jesus, teach us rest in the midst of busyness. And all the people said, Amen. Amen.